Verdammt. <lacht> so we are recording. So. Any last requests? <lacht> Hello and welcome to episode four of the Wired Different podcast. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Tamaresk in West London. He is one of the most charismatic people you will hear. I guarantee you that. I'm starting off to give you a bit of insight into Tamar's background and the reasons for this will become clear as you listen to the episode. Tamar will discuss some emotional events that occurred in his life in the last couple of decades. The tragic murder of his mother on her way home in Kingston, South London, when Tamar was just 19. And last summer, Tamar lost his father 10 weeks after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. It takes an incredibly strong character to make it through events as difficult as those, especially at a young age. Despite these, Tamar has been able to achieve incredible things in his personal and professional life, completing medical school, becoming an academic clinical lecturer, a consultant in kidney medicine, which I'll let you know is one of the most difficult branches of medicine to go into. Not only that, he worked for the pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca, started up his own medical concierge company, and in his creative life is a pretty good dancer, and that's probably the understatement of the day, uh, and choreographer as well. Most recently, he embarked on a creative journey in hip-hop, and it gives us an insight into his influences. Now, without further ado, I hope you enjoy my discussion with Dr. Tamaresk. Welcome to episode four. I think it's four. I hope so, bro. <laughs> episode four two, of two, three the... episodes to get me on the show in it so <laughs> starting like that welcome to episode four of why different we've got a slightly different yes apart from being a academic nephrologist which is a kidney doctor you're also a budding musician a ceo of a yes, concierge <laughs> medicine yeah we don't need to go into all that bro do we? and <laughs> Making what it sound, else, making it sound like else? some sort of like catfish, what bro, else? online, bro. <laughs> former, 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 former dance former choreographer. <laughs> Certified clown. Yeah, exactly. Certified yeah. clown. We have Dr. Tamar Resk. Thank you very much, George. Welcome. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good, bro. Have you done this before? Feeling good. No, I've never done this before. I've done interviews before, but I've never done a podcast. You're always hyping and sending me good podcasts. My sister as well someone who's very like dear to me and her opinion, but I've never really lent into podcasts that much. Maybe it's the concentration, maybe it's that, I don't know. So it's very interesting to be on the receiving end, although I can talk for a long time. So maybe that's why. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's part of why I was interested to hear you on a podcast. I couldn't really imagine, like you've never mentioned any podcasts to me and no. you have a lot of insightful things to say. And you have a story that is more interesting than any I've ever known anybody to have and you've been through it yeah your reason you're here is because you're non-diagnosed neurodivergent so should we start by you first of all telling us about your journey in in life and your experiences of neurodiversity yeah, yeah I think probably if we're going to start about my experience from neurodiversity I think the thing I've realized is basically how sort of neurodivergent or maybe the right word I'm thinking of here, ADHD, my father was. I think that's something that me and my sister, I buried my dad last year and we've talked a lot about that since he's been gone. How we grew up in this household with 
this incredibly charismatic and eccentric and charming and (laughs) impulsive Egyptian guy and how we just thought it was normal. We thought it was normal to go from three, four, five different tasks. Then we thought it was normal to be dad to be driving back in the day when there was none of this like driving with you. Know, my dad wouldn't, wouldn't. We just managed to get him to wear a seatbelt like two years before he died in it. So, but he'd be like driving on the phone, but like eating like a scrambled egg sandwich, and like putting a cassette player in, and also like scratching my sister's back at the same time. We were just like, but bro, you've only got like ten fingers and two arms. Like, how's this all happening? And he's just calm about it. And that's how he vibed. That was his energy. That's what kept him alive. And yet my mum was much more considered critical thinking, slow, pragmatic, task focused, but had very bad, at least if I have inherited those traits from her, very bad anxiety. I would say crippling anxiety as I suffered with crippling anxiety. And probably I would say still do suffer with that up till very recently from a neurodivergency perspective I had these two kind of people that were both very powerful presences in my life that I maybe didn't actually ever consider I just thought they were the norm and I thought everyone else was weird and they both had these two traits. and and you talk about self-diagnosed I've been in therapy took me a long time to get to therapy after my mum died but I got there finally a decade later and my therapist has often talked about the anxiety that I suffer with and maybe some of the OCD, but it was only in the recent years that we've talked about some of the character traits that would fit with neurodivergency. Mm. Um, What? What character traits traits are those? Yeah, I think I'm very sensitive. I've always been very sensitive. You'll relate to this because you're a medic. I used to get such anxiety from work emails. I'd get an email and I'd be on holiday, right? And it'd be about a patient maybe that I've seen, I don't know, like a month ago. And as soon as I see the email, my heart drops. And it doesn't matter where I'm, I could be at dinner with a beautiful girl, or I could be, it doesn't matter where, I could be at a birthday party, but my heart will sink. And I won't be able to bring it back up again until I've sorted that email. And that's Mm. changed since my dad died. Since I took a step away from the NHS, that hold that work had on me has changed, but that, that was basically left unchecked for the better part of 12 years. Why did that change? After your dad passed. Because, I don't know how to say this. I became a consultant nephrologist at the end of of March of last year. And I quit the next day from the NHS, not because my dad was sick, but because I needed a break. People kept on telling me that I didn't fit in their box and I didn't fit in their perception of what a doctor should be like, how a doctor should talk to people, what he should talk to people about how emotionally involved he could be. And I think another thing that I realised is the way that I look and I carry myself was too disruptive for many people. And three weeks later, we found out that my dad had pancreatic cancer. And he died 10 weeks later at home with us all at home. And I think going to meetings where I had my hair in braids and maybe a do-rag on with consultant oncologists who were talking over me as if I wasn't even in the room And I would interrupt and say, sorry, just, I know I might look like a bit of a ute right now, but the reason is because I haven't slept for four days, but I'm a consultant nephrologist. I'm very much aware. And this sort of, just seeing how this incredible healthcare system, there's no question, it's an incredible healthcare system. The NHS? Yeah, the NHS for people and being free at the point of care. And one of the stories I always tell people when I go around the world and talk about the NHS is that I remember being on the liver team and them getting a liver 
and half the liver went to some lord something who was on the private ward with liver failure and the other half went to a guy who'd been homeless but had been housed a year ago with hepatitis and I was like in what world bro does half of the same liver go to two people from completely different walks of life two people who would never ever be in the same room be in the same car be on the same train carriage do you know what I mean they're just there's no way that's what's beautiful about the NHS but the NHS also failed my dad it failed my dad as a man of color it failed my dad as someone whose priority was to eat and drink and be with his family. That was the thing that was important to him. Mm. Eating, drinking, so much of his life was around food and how I saw him go through all these appointments and all these things and no one really was listening to what he was saying. It was just his hostel number, his age and his disease stage. Mm. Do you know, it was a shocking experience and I was like, hang on a second, the way that we're doing this is not doesn't make sense to me anymore. And so when I realized that, then when I was getting these emails, I was like, hang on a second, how much energy do I need to give to this thing that would normally trigger this? I've made a mistake. Maybe the way that things are doing, maybe that emailing someone about a case a month ago, just to criticize them. Because often that's what it was. It was never saying, oh, hey, can we come up with a solution? It was, you saw this patient a month ago and you made this mistake. You should have done this. Okay. (laughs) Where does that leave me? Are we going to talk about it? Are you going to teach me how to not make that mistake? Or are you just criticizing me? So something changed in my mind. Sounds, yeah, triggering. We experience invasion of privacy as clinicians where because time made us accessible around the clock, you're available to everyone even when you're on holiday in your own time. And it's on people to exercise restraint and respect for others' time and not email or try and contact them outside of their working hours but that doesn't tend to happen so much and so it does lead a lot of us to be quite anxious i also think that people who are emotionally switched on and and are emotionally invested suffer with that more the other thing i've realized i was the odd one out at work Mm. i was expecting everyone to be like me and again i don't know if that's neurodiversity i don't know if that's anxiety i don't know if that's inherited generational trauma you tell me bro I don't know what it is but what I do know is I was expecting everyone else to have the same emotive response to a situation that I had and they weren't Mm. you'd be sitting in a clinic talking to someone and I'd be like listen to what this guy is saying to you his body language he's saying something to you he's feeling vulnerable about something and you're just completely ignoring it just moving on because it doesn't fit in your tick box of what you need to do and by having experienced that and being criticised for thinking that way and then going through everything I went through with my dad, I just got to the end of it and I was like, right, this is maybe not really... <laughs> You've mentioned a number of really interesting points that I want to come back on to, like being really sensitive. And that's one of the symptoms that people with ADHD reference quite a lot because yeah. I think the emotional dysregulation involved is one of the core central features, if not the central feature. Um, and is the one that I think has the greatest negative impact on people's lives. To go back to your braids and not fitting in within that environment. Mm -hmm. I know that when you started as a doctor, you were very well-dressed, shirt, tie, always pressed. Very, very white-dressed, George. Mm. They put me in Hill House. They put me in King's College Wimbledon. They sent me to UCL. They sent me to the the most British institutions you could go to. Mm. So I thought to myself, 
look like them, dress like them, cut your hair like them, chase the same girls as them, wear the same polo sport tops as them, you'll be good. You can't go wrong. It's, it's a guaranteed recipe for success. Mm. Yeah. So you, were, you were very pressed, hair gelled back, trimmed, <laughs> <I know that. laughs> muscly, and... That changed. Now, braids, which you have done in an all-black barber. Yeah. Tell us about that change. What inspired it? How you feel now and what you think about before? I have to give credit to my therapist, Yasna. Shout out, Yasna. Because Yasna was the one who clocked onto race very early on. And I think part of that was growing up in, in my home where we used to call my dad the white man. Brown hair, light eyes. And I'll give you guys an example. Dad used to take us every year to the north of Italy, a place called Forte de Marmi, a posh seaside resort by Florence. And I remember one year we were on the beach and my dad wanted to go shopping and I followed my dad into a shop. And I used to take a lot of sun when I was a kid. Like I'd go like chocolate brown, black within three, four days of being in the sun. Hair's all like curly with sand and it all messy, skinny little kid. Look like a, just like a bit of a scruffian. My dad and his like gold chains and it's looking like a mafia boss walking into the shop. And I spoke Italian. I learned Italian at a very young age because we spent so much time there. And the shop owner said to him, Sir, be careful. Cilà un morocchino prossimo di te. Which basically means you've got a Moroccan like beggar next to your feet. Talking about me. And my dad didn't understand what he said, so he said it again. And then he started shouting at me. And my dad just grabbed me, hugged me next to him, as if it wasn't even anything. So it was weird in our house. It what was do you weird. mean, as if it wasn't as anything? If, as dad, if that guy hadn't done hadn't something said anything, wrong? Like, like as, if, as if nothing had happened. Mm. There'd been nothing. I, there was no way that I could have been like hurt by that. He didn't really acknowledge it. Race was a, a weird thing in my house because my dad was from a much more working class background. Where dad grew up in Cairo, Sekakini. You don't want to, you don't want to go there. You don't. If you don't know people from around there, we go. We're blessed because everyone knows we're Maurice's children. Everyone knows our family, and we have some presence there. But you don't want to be walking into that. Dad came from a very humble beginning. What's that like in term, in the UK? So I can have a reference. I think Sekakini, is there anywhere like Sekakini, that in the UK? they like slaughter goats when when they celebrate the end of Ramadan, and they'll just be like blood and entrails on the like entrance to the apartment block. So I don't think anywhere is this. African ghetto as that, but it would be a rough part of London and not like a trendy rough part, just like a rough part. We used to go there and always stay there because my dad would always want to be close to his family. Mm. But now that he's gone, I love you, daddy, but there's no need to go back and stay in Sekikini. This is the time and place for... But sorry, it's a long-winded way of me saying that I had this white working class background-like mm. male figure. And then my mum, who was much darker, who to me felt much more mixed race and African. Her father, who I never met, her, her dad, who died shortly after her wedding, actually, who was from the south of Egypt. So basically the black, much more Nubian, African ancestry part of Egypt. So it was interesting growing up because I went to this very white school. And I remember distinctly one argument we had at home where I was being bullied and I was being bullied hard. And I was basically, I can't really take this anymore. And then I got my hair braided. I was about 15. And my mum was doing it for me. And my dad walked into the room and he just said, why are you doing this stupid stuff? It's like you're bringing the bullying onto yourself or something like that. And it was one of the first times my mum spoke back to him about it. And she said, back off, Maurice. 
just back off. This is how he feels comfortable. Mm. So my mum stayed out of the sun. She never got a tan. She straightened her hair. But I never saw my mum leave the house with her hair not straightened and pressed. Mm. Why was that? Because I think Egypt carries a lot of racism in it. Egypt carries a lot of colonialism and the celebration of a kid who goes to a German school or a French school who is of colonial ancestry, has got Italian or, or French blood. And so, the more African you are, the less valuable you are. It's basically it. So people would aspire to look more or to Caucasian. Yeah, yeah, get yeah. And closer to towards whiteness. Yeah. And you don't just see that in Egypt, like in India, that in many right. cultures. It's, there are very few cultures and societies that have been able to block this colonial narrative of white superiority Maybe the only country that I find very fascinating who did it is Japan, where they were just a bit like, they're so nationalistic about how they think. But Egypt, for example, is a country that celebrates the whiteness, puts mm. them on a pedestal. Mm. We have this saying in Egypt where like a white guy can come along and do anything that he wants and everyone will be like, oh, it's okay, it's, it's, you know, he's, mm. he's a guest in our country. Do you see mm. what I mean? But mum was from a much more educated background, a much better class. She grew up in a quite a nice part of Egypt in a villa, like... She went to the American University. She travelled before she got married. Like, she had almost a different... So I had these two dichotomies of a woman of colour, <laughs> but from a slightly more middle-class mm. background. And then a white man, but from a much rougher king-class background. So race was a very interesting thing in my household that I've only really got to grips with in the past few years. Mm. What was that like growing up with racial disparities in your parents' backgrounds, did that create tensions within your family? I don't think it created tensions within my family about race. I think the big tension I had with my father and, and particularly about my sexuality as well, is that my dad was like, why make things harder for yourself? if that makes sense. Like, why not just play by the rules? Mm. Why not just wear the Italian shirt? Why not just wear the stainless steel Rolex? Why do you have to go for the gold and the diamonds? Why just be more like, more Euro European or more like, more mainstream? And is that to say discreet? Yeah, I think discreet would be, although it's funny because my dad wasn't really very discreet, to be honest. But yeah, I think to be discreet, to be, to be, I think my dad also didn't really understand black culture. He didn't really get it. He also didn't realise what a safe space black culture was for me. The one thing I will say about my friends of colour, including you, but including basically all of my either black friends or people of mixed ancestry or people at least who are very much part of that culture is how welcoming a culture is. I'm a Coptic Christian Egyptian, right? I'm from a very specific ethno-religious group. Do you know what I mean? We are very unwelcoming to outsiders as, as a community. People marry within their community. The church is full of Egyptians, but it's not, it's, it doesn't, do you see what I mean? So I don't feel like I fit in at school. I don't feel like I, to some degree, fit in at home. But one part was the culture that welcomed me through music, through dance, through singing lessons, through whatever you want to call it. Just being part, like being in the vibes, the fashion, the film. His dad didn't really get that. Right. So your dad had a working class background in Egypt. Yeah. And then moved over to the UK. Yeah, man did a mad thing. So my dad left Egypt to get out of the military service. I can say this now because he's dead in it. He can't get in trouble. And he moved to the UK and he worked for a couple of years. See, the thing about my dad is he had the hustle in him. He's a hustler. 
He could sell ice to Eskimos. He came here, he started working, got a job in a bank called BCCI, an Arab bank. And he excelled very quickly and he bought properties and he built wealth. So my dad did something that like, George, like it would be the equivalent of you as a junior doctor amassing like a, a prop, from where you've come from, like owning five hospitals, you know what I mean? Compared to where he came from and what he achieved, he did something mad. So he was very entrepreneurial. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see that in you as well. Yeah. Your childhood. It's interesting how your dad was from a working class background, but then you went to schools, very posh yeah, schools. Yeah. So that's what that was like. Complicated, isn't it? The problem is this, this photo probably says, oh, have you seen this photo? No. Should we describe it to the readers? <laughs> this is a photo of me at Hill House. This is the school that Prince Charles, the claim to famous Prince Charles went there. Oh, wow. Before he went to Eton. And you got oh. my man, yeah, a bunch <laughs> of little white kids, yeah. And my man's just sitting on the teacher's lap like it's normal. <laughs> it's normal, right? Yeah. With the little, like, side eye, like, it's I look crazy. cute, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think I was very aware from a young age that I was the odd one out and the exotic one and the one mm. who had to... I don't know what the word is, George. The one who had to, like be the best version of what an Egyptian boy could be in those scenarios. Basically a performer. Mm. I learned how to wear a mask. I wore that face at school. So for example, the other thing about me, bro, is I knew I was bisexual from very young, from maybe eight, nine, when I started going through puberty or started watching other boys or, or other girls and be like, oh, I'm drawn to that. Mm. But that was in an extremely white environment. Right. We're going to come on to because I want to speak about that. But I've walked back over and I'm just looking again at this picture of your primary school class. And there are, what, one, two, 12 children in the class, all but three of them, four if we count you, have very fair hair. You're the only person in the photo who's got curly hair. Yeah, and everyone is white. That's not unusual for the UK at the time. No. But that must have been... A lot. Well, I don't think I realised it, bro, because I thought, to me, I was a bit like, okay, performer, you're on... I always talk about this about you. Have you ever watched Sex Education, the, the black boy in Sex I can't remember his name, but he's, like, handsome, super smart, like, super athletic. Just this whole, like, you just have to be the best of the best of the best. Like, you've been given this chance to be in this world, so you can't be good, you can't be very good, you can't... You have to be exceptional. That's the bar. The bar is exceptional. And that was happening, but then I was also exploring my sexuality, where I was at King's, for example, and I was like... King's is... An all-boys school in mm. Wimbledon. Mm. King's posh. College, Wimbledon. It's posh, yeah, it's posh. Put it like this, the black guy who joined, I think one of the first black kids that we ever got was Trevor McDonald's son. That's <laughs> not your local grandma or your local. It was like 25 bags a year. And I think my parents thought... 25,000. Sorry, sorry, 25,000 <laughs> yeah. a year. I thought my parents thought, how can we guarantee that our kid will have the best chance of getting through this? What was essentially a system that they saw was they were never really gonna be able to ascend. Let's send him to the fucking whitest school we can find, the poshest school. They tried to send me to Eton and Eton were like, no way. You're not old English and you're not a diplomat. So why do you even think your kid would come here? This is how the UK is. And we're talking about in the nineties, we're talking different world. We're talking about a time in the UK where walking down the street and seeing a mixed race couple was not that common. Right. That's a really different upbringing to what I had. I went to comprehensive school throughout. So this was a world that was really across the tracks for me. Yeah. And I can see how it can become 
a lot because it sounds like you were masking from a very young age. Next, code switching. That's a buzzword, but we can both identify with because we just kind of assumed identities and it was necessary in a way to fit in. Yeah, it was also something that I had to do from a very early age with my father because my dad didn't speak uh, perfect English. My mum did, but my dad didn't. When I would be with Egyptian people or other people from my community who maybe their kids didn't go to those schools and watch I would learn to just moderate what I was talking about. Mm. The the other thing I wanted to say, and it's maybe not so much a code switch, but the other big thing that was very strange for me growing up, and I always talk about this with my therapist, is how I was in this very white environment that I felt very acutely othered by, but I was also, and watch for this because this was unexpected, I also felt much safer sexually in Kings as an all-boys school because there were other kids who were not straight. Whereas at home, I knew very much being an Egyptian, that was a no-go zone, bro. This is a no-go zone. Mm. You're talking about a time when people didn't even talk about it. I came out to my dad. I came out after my mum died. When I was seven or eight or nine or 10 or whenever I first realised that, I was like, yeah, I'm never telling anyone about this. I never planned to tell my dad about anything. So it was weird how I felt safe in some things in school, but I felt very weird in other things. When I came home, I felt safe in some things, but then I felt quite like I couldn't fully be myself. I basically had never found a place. I never found my tribe. I never found a place where I could just be myself. Hmm. Not constantly having to like switch on and switch off certain parts of me. How did you cope with that? I <laughs> Not sure I'd say I probably didn't cope with it very well, bro. And so we're sitting here, we're sitting here having this podcast, bro. <laughs> it's not therapy, but what did you do to I think get I just, through it? I think I just focused on... It sounds like you were very confident and extroverted in certain elements, perhaps where you had to perform or where... I guess your reward was to be accepted Yeah, in those... Well, that's the thing. I, was, I think if you want to summarise me... In a single sentence, you could say that so much of what I do is to win people's love and affection. Mm. And I think that actually started with my mum and to some degree with my dad, but definitely with my mum. My mum loved me, but she loved me when I got 97% in a maths exam. And I know that if I got 40% in a maths exam and that wasn't just a one-off, that love was different. Conditional. Yeah. Searching for unconditional love. That's a good name for a track, bro. I'm going to write that shit down. In second generation kids of immigrants, I think that's quite a common experience. And it does make sense because everyone wants to make a better future for their children based upon the experiences that they've had. And I guess if coming here was as potentially isolating or hostile, then they've got no reason to not want to instill in us values or skills that again mean that we can assimilate and be seen as non-foreign and that has consequences but you wouldn't expect our parents would have been able to predict the effects that may have had on us yeah and i also don't think our parents have much insight into their own traumas their own mental health my mum definitely suffered with severe anxiety she was incredibly beautiful and charming and elegant but that's the face that she presented to the rest of the world. The side of her that I saw was completely different. Much more vulnerable, much more worried, always worried about getting older. My mum used to say to me, bro, 
and listen to the words in it. She said to me, if God loves me, I'll come home from work one day and I'll drop dead. I'll never get old. I'll never get sick. And that's exactly what happened to her in an awful way. But she got her wish. And I saw that growing up. I saw the way my mum used to look at herself in the mirror and she'd be looking at her legs. And I'd be like, you look great, mum. Like, you look like all my friends are always like, your mum's so fit and what you call it in school, like teasing you. But she didn't see that in herself. All she saw was imperfections. All she saw were the things that she could get better. And I inherited that actively, inactively, consciously, subconsciously. I don't know, I don't know what just psychotherapeutic explanation for it, but I inherited that. You have that. Yeah, yeah, bro. When I first came out, when I was like 24, 25, and I was ripped, I, I had like at least a four pack. I never got that six pack, but I had the top four, the hard four, yeah? I'd be like bending over in the gym and I'd be like, raw, bro, I am fat. I'd be like using the word fat to describe how I saw my body. And it's so dysmorphic, but other gym boys or gay guys, I would say that to and they'd know what I mean. And so much of a lot of my grooming, a lot of my way of always needing to be like fresh, like brush my teeth, flossed, aftershave, deodorant, presentable. I got a lot of that from my mum, from watching her. And I think for her, it was because she knew she was a woman of colour. She knew that if she was going to come out here and even stand a chance, she needed to be the best, the highest standard. It was the highest standard for herself. Hmm. A mad amount of pressure, it sounds when somebody's experiencing that level of pressure every day, it's weird that you would think they would be unaffected mentally. Right? If you think people who have a non-stressful existence do not have anxiety, then it's not strange that we expect people who do have stress to not have anxiety. Yeah. I think what you're saying is you're saying if it's so visible and so obvious now looking back at the trauma that someone's going through, why are we surprised that those people suffer with mental health problems? Yeah. And I think the problem is we didn't really understand or identify trauma. I thought what I was doing was completely normal. I thought it was just my role. I thought it was normal to come home and your mum be like, how did the maths exam go? And I was like, oh, I got like 93%. She'd be like, okay, well done, well done. So listen, do you want to have some dinner or do you want to go through the questions now? Or do you want to go through the ones you got wrong? That was just a norm, bro. It was like, when you get 100%, you get that. But I'll tell you something funny about mum. Tell you something funny about mum. So my mum was, I think, destined to be a performer as well. <laughs> and apparently my mum did a lot of TV presenting before she got married when they were engaged to my dad. So also apparently she went to Saudi to work. She was interviewed by NBC, which is basically like BBC, but for the Middle East. It was like a big channel. And my mum's friend, Raoul Yarashid, is like a, a big like TV personality in Egypt. She's now written books and she's in her 70s. But mum went to Saudi for an interview and they said that they loved her but she was too black for the station and she came back and before my dad had even heard what happened he was like that's the last time you're doing that once we have kids you're sitting down and being a wife and I remember telling mum that I got into UCL med school and the only thing I can remember is that she seemed she didn't seem happy she just seemed you know a bit like when you're expecting news and you should be happy about it, but you're, yeah, but you just, it was always going to be the next thing. And I remember thinking to myself, why isn't she happier if this is what she wants? And then I remember she only came to one of our dance shows, mm. the first one. Yeah. Anyway, I have a distinct memory of Dina and dad and mum coming out from the side of the gallery. And she was absolutely ecstatic. She was like, 
bursting. Like her smile was from like one eye going around to the other eye down. Like she was just, and she like launched into hug me. And it was like, raw. Your, your emotions betray you. And this was after her seeing the dance that you had choreographed. Exactly stage. on stage. Wow. So I feel like she knew I had this performing energy in me. She knew I had this, this want to do something that wasn't just the academic thing. We never really talked about it. We never considered it as like a life for me. But did you see the analogy I'm giving? Like I get into UCL med school. You think she'd be like, fine, that's it. I've done my job. Like he's got into And now it was the dance that she lost herself almost. Like her emotions deceived her. And I only heard the story last year about mum going to Saudi Arabia because I had lunch with this lady Rawiya and my sister and she was telling this story and it, I just remembered it and thought, yeah, it makes sense, isn't it? You didn't know that until no. last year. Oh, that no. must have been confusing. What did you think your mum's impression was considering how she responded to you getting an exam result, 97%, 93% or yeah, whatever it might have been? Don't give me them extra 4%. Yeah. And when you got into UCL Med School, it was quite a muted response. But yeah. then... When she came to watch you in the dance show, it was ecstasy. How did you interpret that before you knew? I didn't. I didn't even realise it, bro. That's the kind of thing that I've worked through with therapy. Mm. So, but subconsciously, did that influence I think your I always, actions? I think I always knew that this was a trade-off with mum and dad, which is with mum, if I was academically excellent, if I was a top surgeon or the top this or the top that... I knew deep down that if I also like came out and I was like, I'm dating a guy, like I'm not even going to date a woman, like I'm just fully gay. I know for my mum, the most important thing out of those two things was being excellent. Does that make sense? Right. And I know that's exactly the opposite of my dad. My dad was much more, there were just things that he thought about, about life, about how life should be, about how a man should have kids. So for him, it was a very sort of simple analogy of of what my parents so he wouldn't be like go and spend your whole life trying to be the best of the best have a family buy a house so it's like being pulled in two different directions constantly that, yeah i want to be like fuck both of you i want to do my thing yeah that's must have been confusing because they're both quite invested in the life that you were going to have <laughs> invested is a light term for it yeah but it sounds like they were investing as well yeah so, they invested so, money you know, they invested it, money when i told my dad i wanted to go to dance college he was like are you dumb he said, do you know how much money I've spent on your education? He's like, you go to med school, and then if you finish med school, then you can go off and go to dance, go and do whatever you want. Mm. He was like, no, you're an investment. I invested in you. This is, that's, how we, that's how a lot of parents see their kids, particularly from certain cultures and certain backgrounds. Mm. We're an asset. So if we've touched on the experiences that first-generation immigrants to the UK in the... 70, 60s, 70s, 80s would have had and what they would have faced. And their response to that was to make sure the next generation didn't have to face the problems that they faced, barriers, racism, exclusion. And you were given opportunities to go to the places where there was sort of a, a streamlined route to class, class escalation. escalation. Mm. I don't have that experience, but I experienced things like masking would open doors for you and think you're, talking, you're talking about code switching now 
Code switching. Yeah. yeah. Code, are code switching and masking the yeah, same thing? Exactly. I think exactly. They are, probably it's, just having a, it's having a face. Absolutely. Yeah. Trying to hide elements also... of your personality to, to make your presence more comfortable for people in the space that you're now occupying. You did it with uni. You did it. You were also, bro, you were a jock. You're like football guy, like rugby guy, like sports guy. Like you were a Not jock. Rugby, you, football. Yeah, but you're one of the, you're one of the, like you always hung around with all the like jock guys. Like it's funny how in this country you can call it code switching. You could be a black guy in this country. And if you're great at football, whether you go to a rough school, whether you go to a really posh good school, because you're good at football, you're like, do you know what I mean? You could be an Egyptian guy. Look at Mo Salah. My ex was from Liverpool. She says that Mo Salah did more for race relations and religious tensions in the north of England than any campaign has ever been done. Egyptian Muslim guy with a Mahageba wife, but plays for Liverpool and they what, love what's ha- Mo Salah. Hageba? Mahageba is when the, a woman is like veiled, is like has a head covered. You wouldn't be able to tell that he's Muslim. If you're seeing a man and his wife, you can tell that his wife is of a certain religion. You can make an assumption that he's... But just you see how someone, like in this country, to be excellent at sport, and you were excellent at sport, and you had that sort of like that... that. So you're constantly code-switching from being a jock to being like an academic to then being like a second-generation Ghanaian then to... Being like, you know, from North London, like there are different tribes, there are different codes. And was the code switching the same at every stage in your life or did you... No. Did it change? Changed. I mean, at school, it was pretty simple. You know, at school, I had to tone down my brownness and I had to tone down my whiteness at home and in church. Those are the two main groups. And the only only people that I felt relaxed with were my non-school and my non-Egyptian friends. (laughs) That was your home? Yeah, but yeah, basically just just non non Egyptian friends like, and non white private school friends. Those are only two groups. And then what when I got, they like? which one? What would they be like? Yeah, look, like the Egyptian, the Egyptian lot are great. We're just very traditional, bro. We're like a very traditional culture. Where I was talking about gay rights back when I was like thirteen. I was talking about talking about women's rights back when I was thirteen. People were just like, what the fuck are you talking about, bro? There are no gay rights. God does not accept or love gay people and they will go to hell and there's no like that was what i was raised by as a, as a principal and not in such a horrible it's just what people believed they came from a country where the government just shoots dead gay people that's happened before so they come from a culture so i sympathized with it do you know what i mean mm. but then i also noticed the racism this like elitism of egyptianness mm. and the whiter you were as an egyptian the more like egyptian you were and the blacker you were the less egyptian one i was just a bit like this is all very fucked up guys and also so colonial and this is not actually a reflection of who you've you think but it's happens in so many cultures and communities and let me tell you something when mum died when mum my mum was murdered when i was 19 in very yeah very intense circumstance and i would be lying if i didn't say that it's the egyptian coptic community that kept us going without them we would not have you know, they were a big part of, and maybe not for me, I had you guys and we were tight. But remember my dad and my sister had left, she'd finished at Cambridge, she was back mm. in London and my dad was on his own. So they really hugged us as a community and took care of us. It was a big thing in our mm. church. That like, was the first time it ever happened. It was like a big... Yeah, that's one of the great strengths of sort of religious communities that I've experienced. I grew up in a very Jewish area and unfortunately I've had, I had to go to a couple of funerals and Jewish funerals, and it was like re- remarkable yep. how the community came back together. Yeah. I remember I I'd left school for thirty years when I went back to 
the funeral of a, of a friend of mine from primary school and seeing all the faces from our yeah. school yeah. was just like, what? And, yeah. Community, and, bro. Yeah. Community and a tribe. They're, they're one of the oldest tribes. And, and community is a huge, is a huge thing. And it definitely has purpose in those ways, but you're describing that it really limited your I just never felt part, I never felt part of it, bro. I'm always surprised when Coptic people are like, I'm just generally surprised when people accept me. I'm surprised when people accept me. Why? Because I've never really, like I said, at school, I was too brown, a bit too gay. At church, I was a bit too feminine, a bit too gay. It seems like everywhere I go in medicine, I'm a bit too disruptive and a bit too eccentric. But that's always been the way. In the gay community, when I came out, I would never tell people I'm bisexual. Never. Never. You tell someone you went on a date with a really like attractive guy that you think they're kind of, then you tell him you're bisexual, he's like, not interested. You're not really gay. You're like, you're, you're sitting on the fence. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I just found everywhere I was mm. going. Mm. I went to Egypt last year to sort out my dad's estate thinking I would find my people, find my tribe. I realized, yeah, there's lots of things about Egypt that is familiar, but there's a lots of things that are very different. Maybe that's just what life is, bro. Maybe you can never actually just... Be calm, be yourself. Like you're always to some degree having to front, having to... I, I want to unpack that a bit because it's not a rare description of life for people where you have parents from different parts of the country or the world. Yeah. You have non-traditional ideas, values, orientation. Yeah. And you don't really have a home. You're in no man's land. Yeah. And everyone has a reason to try and reject you. You said you were surprised when it, anyone accepted you. Yeah. Why? I think it's because I don't think I've ever had, at least in the way that I'm hoping to experience, unconditional love. I adore my mum. I adore my mum. But I think looking back on the relationship, I think a lot of our relationship was quite conditional. And I would say... Paradoxically, my dad, who a few months before he died, called me up and said to me, I want to be very clear with you. I don't want you to stay in a relationship with a woman for me. I don't want you to choose a relationship with a woman and a marriage for me. I don't want you to go down a path that you're doing for me. This is before he even knew he was sick because he was like, it's your life. I've lived my life. God has blessed me with two kids and I want, I've had a great life. I want you to have a good life. Took us a long time to get there, wow. but we got there. Yeah. How did that make you feel? Made me feel so calm. Made me feel so calm to have his... I knew deep down that's what he was like. My dad was... My dad's exact words to me when I came out to him. He said, but why are you going to make your life harder again? He said, you've already been through so much. Why make it harder? He was like, or even don't come out, just do it. But don't like, why make your life harder? And I think that's the thing. It was all love. It was all fear. I yeah, he was yeah. all afraid. He was all afraid. You said your mum didn't have insight into her mental health. And at the time I was thinking the same thing I'm thinking now about your dad. And what I'm thinking is we're quite lucky today to have exposure to different people's experiences and ideas about mental health and understanding why people appear to us the way they do. The trauma that's led to 
mental health or mental illness. Love being presented in a way that is, I want to protect you. I think that's a big thing for men. Males, actually. Male mammals, at least. Mm. Across the species, lions, wolves, gorillas, etc. The way they demonstrate love for their family is to go ahead, find threats, mm. eliminate them so the family can pass safely. That's their demonstration of love. Protection, right? Yeah. I think in a way that happens with us, it's quite difficult to express love in another way. But it's hard when you don't get to understand at the time that's what's happening. I think the thing that I can't quite believe is how different it was losing dad to losing mum and how it was harder and easier at the same time in different ways. Mum was snatched from us and all the trauma and the fear and the finding the killer and them taking the house and it being like a, a one and a half year ordeal and a court case and a watch call it. And dad, I watched die. I watched starve to death, basically. Think about pancreatic cancer is that when you can't eat and drink, you're watching someone starve away. You're watching someone shut down in pain. And it was also very intimate. I'd never been through that with a patient. Because you think about it with patients, you never stay in their room, you never sit next to them. It was a real... And I'll tell you what I realised. I realised that both my parents were very courageous about certain things. And then there were other things that they were scared about. I think my mum was scared of upsetting society. And I think I've evolved, I've carried their, their experience. I'm so grateful for their love and their nurturing and how they've developed me. But I feel like I'm, I'm gonna grow into a new person. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm. It's weird when you bury mm. both your parents, you, you just, you're like, you just become a, I feel more grounded. I feel like my feet are heavier on the ground. Like I'm, and part of what I'm exploring creatively and part of the reason why I've taken a step away from clinical medicine and moved towards things that I think maybe challenge and bring out the parts of me that I want to explore is because I think there is a lot of voice that needs to be given to what I've been through. There's a lot that needs to come out. There's a lot that needs to be processed. There's a lot of I'm sorry's that need to be said to myself. There's a lot of I'm angry. One of the most interesting my therapist ever said to me, she was like, have you ever been angry before? And I was like, yeah, obviously I get better angry at things. She said, but when's the last time you ever lost your temper at someone? And I was like, you know what? I don't know. <laughs> and she's like, do you have a lot to be angry about? And I was like, I do have quite a lot to be angry about. That's another thing that's changed. It's almost like losing both my parents has allowed me to come from under their shadow and be like, I can just say what I want to say and do what I want to do and try and listen to the emotions that are inside me and connect with that and whatever comes up because I'm not living a life or playing a life for someone else. Do mm. you see what I mean? It sounds like you feel like some parts of you are stifled yeah. by baggage that your parents were carrying. And, how and the expectation that my parents had. Yeah. Now, how are you dealing with that? How are you trying to find your voice? Hmm. Is that what you're trying to do? I definitely don't give the same value to things that I used to. Like how much more of my emotions am I giving to... I gave 12 years to the NHS, bro. My dad and my sister went to a trip on, to Jerusalem with our church five years ago. And I remember saying to him, I don't want to go because I don't want to have to email the road to coordinator. It was a consultant who didn't like me to ask to just use my annual leave. Not even swap anything, just to use manual because I was scared of pissing. I wanted them to move on and then to rotate to another trust and then do that. I've missed weddings. I missed holidays for this idea of what I should be 
And then when it came to it, my dad's gone and there is no money you could say to me to say, I'll just spend another like month with him or we go on a holiday together. So it's almost like God dealt me a slap in the face and was like, look at what you're dedicating your emotional energy to. And is this actually what you want? And I think that's the big thing for me. And once I realized that, the kind of life that I thought was going to make me happy, the dominoes started falling. And then I'm like, that's not true. And I've attached a certain amount of income or prestige or a title to that. So that's not true. Then I've attached going to this place and hang around with these people and going to Ibiza and going to Mykonos. That's not true. And it kept, these dominoes just kept on knocking. And I was like, oh shit. So I'm going to build this from scratch again. Reconstruct what I want my life to be like. Mm. Would it be fair to say that the things you just mentioned, the cost of becoming a doctor and working in the NHS with maybe mum's dream and actually you could be pleasing people. You yeah. were a people pleaser. And where does that lead you? And where does Not that end, bro? Part where does that know? end? Yeah. I think it ends where like, you're describing. It's got to end. It's got, it's, at some point, you just got to be like, you're pleasing all these people, but what about yourself? And even if you're not pleasing yourself, are you at least nourishing yourself? I was being lacerated left and center. My heart was getting slashed left and center. I was seeking this favor and this love and this opinion from these people who don't have any love or favor to give me, I think. It was a bizarre. It's interesting. When we've been talking, I've noticed the code switching, especially, of course, as this is an audio, in my voice, and yeah. Your, yeah, it happens a lot. Know, yeah, but the, and these are not being put on yeah, in yeah. any way, yeah, shape, yeah, or yeah. form. These are the different parts of you that are now a bit automatic, depending on the subject matter you're talking Absolutely. about. And considering that you've had rejection from a lot of these different spaces that you talk about, the posh school kids, etc., and you've now these different alter egos, yeah, a necessity to be accepted. Now that you feel there's nobody here at the moment that I'm trying to get to accept me. Who is the real... Tamaresque. Yeah. It's funny because your question is basically almost saying to me, of all the stripes on your back, who are you when you're your most comfortable? And it's the flamboyant, slightly eccentric, quite kinky and sexual Tamar. And we haven't really talked about that in this podcast, but I was made to feel shame about being like that, despite mm. my whole family being quite sexual. My dad have quite strong, you know, I used to have ex-girlfriends when I was growing up being like, your dad is, dad's got something about him. He's got this, he's just got this energy about him. Like me and my sister talk about this, the way that we have, we can't really be in relationships with people where the, the sexual energy goes. We're just a bit like, no, we need something. We need something. It's, I'm not saying it needs to be like a mad thing, but it needs to be something. So. Who am I at my core, George? I'm dominant. I have a dominant energy. Once I get something in my head, I'm like a dog with a bone. I want humans to connect. That's what I thrive off. I thrive off human connection. I think a big reason I stayed in medicine for so long is I love talking to patients. I think it's such an intimate moment where you do the medicine, you do the blood test, the kidney function, your transplant, blah, 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 your medicine, everything, blood pressure. You've got like four minutes, you're like, what are you doing for Christmas? Like you, you have a chance to just connect with someone. As you, and that's it's a privilege. It, feed, it nourishes me. Do you know what I mean? In some ways. But I do think if you cut me open, bro, I'm a dichotomy. I like to go to Harrods and pick up a, a nice little 
timepiece for 50 bags and then go sit in KFC with my boys and sit and have a bucket and chat shit. I, I have these kind of two sides of me that, that have always been there. And for so long, I've tried to, I've tried to marry them or pick one over the other. And I'm just starting to realize they're just, I'm a Gemini. I'm a Gemini. I don't know if that's it. Like it's, it's got two different energies, two different streams. And yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. It does. I was actually going to ask before you answered it. Does there have to be one type? Does there have to be one personality type? Does there have to be one Tamar? I don't think so. It's interesting because there will be two different people. There'll be... I think the key thing is that people always talk about this true to yourself. Yeah, true to yourself. It's a good, it's a good, it's a good idea. I would be more focused on caring for yourself. I'm trying to just, from this moment forward in my life, I'm trying to be more loving to myself. I think I've always had that quite academic, hardworking, let's get this task done as watch but then also that very playful, comedic, entertainer, disruptive. I would, you would always, you say this, bro, we'd be out in a social group, we'd be like, wait for Tama to drop her an inappropriate bomb. Do you know what I mean? Talk about something that's just inappropriate this time or, yeah, I think that was always in me and that's been in me since I was a child. Why is that? I think it's, I often say the thing that I think a lot of people are thinking, but they don't want to say. And it's seeing that and seeing that energy is in people and be like, come on guys, we can get this shit out. We can tease this shit out. <laughs> Do you want to talk about that? I can get like, it's, it's coming. Do you know what I mean? And it didn't always used to be, it can sometimes be about being vulnerability. It can be about sadness. I remember we had a lot of chats after mum died, me, you and the boys. And I remember we, we would sit and we would talk and everyone was a bit like, Ross, some deep shit we're talking about here. But we, we did it. Maybe it's this idea of like always striving and searching to, discover more, to experience more, to understand yourself, to connect more. I don't know, something more superlative. Do more, be more. You, you think you, you may have undiagnosed ADHD. What does that look like in your life? It most presents in my professional life. Have you ever heard this word about being a catalyst mind? Where I just, I'll be sitting in a room having a conversation with people and I'll be like, yeah, bro, we've already got from zero to 100. Like, we've already worked out what the solution is. And everyone's like, it's been the first, like, 12 minutes of a meeting. And they're thinking we're going to come to a solution after 12 months of meetings. And I'm a bit like, am I just, am I a bit crazy? Have I just come up with, how is it that I've... It's like my mind does a lot of different things. Like, a lot of different things at the same time. And if I manage to hold on to something, often that first instinct was actually the right one. I'll often look back at emails or submitted a paper to a journal. The first draft of the paper is very similar to the last draft. Mm. I think it's changed dramatically. But when I look at it five, six, I did this recently with a paper. I looked at it and I thought I read the final submitted manuscript. It was the version one. And I was like, I didn't realise it was the version one. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. But my brain has this habit of, it does many different things. And then I find, particularly in work environments, people are like, no, you need to do things properly. There are processes, there are what you call it. And just always being almost like, I'm like running on a treadmill. And then people are like, no, you have to start at like one kilometer an hour, then go to two kilometers an hour, then go. And I just find myself very like, very bored, but also like self-question. Like, am I, am I a bit deluded? And then I'll be with other people who are a bit more like me, a bit more catalytic, like lots of ideas moving from place to place. I'm like, oh, finally. I feel like we're talking like, Right. Like we're literally talking the same language. It's like when you talk English and Arabic. When I talk Arabic with my Arabic friends, it's much more dynamic. It's a bit like when I code switch and I'm talking with 
my boys. The English that I'm talking is much more engaging, emotive. And, and then in my personal life, George, I think the hypersensitivity is most damaging. It makes it very hard for me to have intimate relationships. And I think I have built a guard up to stop people maybe seeing some of the most vulnerable sides of me because I can't imagine the pain of being oversensitive and then someone that you love seeing some of your worst features and maybe judging you for it. So I think that's how it plays for my mm. personal life. Right. But I the one thing I don't have about the ADHD is I don't have the, like losing your keys for forgetfulness. Like I have OCD on that side. Like I have to like, if we'd like, I've, for the whole time we've done here, I wanted to get up and tidy up those things like on the kitchen, t on the table. It's just, it's distracting me from it. Do you know what I mean? Is that a part of, I don't know. I, for, for... I think a lot of the current research talks about there being many different elements. It doesn't fit into the hyperactive, yep. inattentive combined paradigms, whatever. I don't yeah, yeah. really believe it's robust. There are many elements that different people have. So you can just go on the different elements. Also, George, not just that. It's not just, it's not just robust. It's so tunnel visioned medicine has such a bad habit of making fitting your symptoms into my diagnostic bundle to access my prescription therapies yeah there is a lot of work to try and increase personalization of medicine so you treat the person in front of you rather than the disease that may not fit with what you're seeing in front of you so it's important to not ignore that and just treat the textbook essentially what a blood I think test that, bro yeah all the, the blood, blood nephrologist. Yeah. We treat blood tests. We look at blood tests. We look at urine markers. We look at immunological, and we treat them. And then what's so mad is when you're the patient, bro. What's so mad is when you're the patient, <laughs> and you're talking to someone. You're like, bro, you're not listening to me. You're not listening. I'm telling you the thing. The issue that I have is X, Y, Z. That's what I found mad about this journey with my therapist. All she does is listen to me. <laughs> You've mentioned before about your experience with your dad, and they weren't taking that into account. Yeah, we know what the diagnosis is, but this is my father. This is what he wants the end of his life to Absolutely. kind of play out like. Absolutely. And it doesn't, it may not fit with what the quote unquote optimal treatment plan is, according to the book. It wasn't but... even, it wasn't even that. It was just the fact that people, he was just another pancreatic cancer case. Mm. He was defined by his disease. Patients are defined by their the dialysis patient in bed 10, the transplant in bed 15, the AK on the orthopedic ward. What? Those are all at best quite bad diagnoses. Dialysis is just a descriptive term. Transplant is just, you know, as a scientist, that's not very detailed, not very deep, but that's what people are reduced to. And what we're realizing is that physical health and mental health cannot be separated. And what we're probably gonna realize is that untreated mental health is one of the most important contributors to physical health. Yeah. In relationships, you talked about your um, hypersensitivity. Yeah. And that was something that would mean that you kept a bit of a distance and maybe didn't reveal your whole self or the, the parts of yourself that you're worried would push somebody away. Yeah. I think that's common. What do you think about that now? And what do you think when you look forward? I think... One time when I was like five years old, Dina came into my room and I was talking to myself. And Dina was like, who are you talking to? And I was like, I'm just talking to myself. Me and my sister are very close. 
my sister's one of the only people who's never, ever once in my life, never once made me feel like I need to be ashamed of who I am. Mm. It's quite amazing. Hmm. It almost brings me to tears because it's, talk about unconditional love. I can't say I haven't had unconditional love. And I remember she looked at me and she said, but what are you talking about? And I was like, I'm just talking through my, like my day, like what happened, like how I feel. And most of the time, I've always assumed that the way my mind works is a hindrance, is a disease, is something to be ashamed of, is something to be, to be normalised, to be regulated, to be normatived. I thought it was just another part of how everything I do, I can't seem to stick to rules. I always want to bend a rule or always be a bit different. I think now, George, I'm fuck it, bro. That's who I am. And it's got me this far, right? It's got me a PhD and a couple businesses and a I've constantly downplayed it and I've played someone else's game and I'm not number one, but I'm not number 500. I've got close to the top. Now I'm a bit like, well, maybe just lean into the way that your mind works. Am I made for a corporate culture? No, bro, I'm made for a venture capital firm where you've got a bunch of like disruptive people on a panel and people are coming to pitch and you're asking ideas and watching this idea. It's quick, it's fast paced. It's, I've always been like that. I've always been... I've always been future looking. I've always been youth facing. I've always liked the youth. When I'm in a room, bro, from a business perspective, I want to be the oldest person in the room. I think youth is one of the biggest assets we have. I'm so fed up of being the youngest person who's the most disruptive. I want to be in a room with someone who's more disruptive. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I want to be the traditionist. I want to be the conservative thinker. So I think I'm just like now almost embracing the way my mind can deal with two, three, four different things the way that I like to touch in and out of things. Is it hard? Yeah, it is hard. It, this would probably be a prudent point in the show to say, I think CBD does help it as a sort of, as a substance that regulates my thoughts. It allows me to, it often allows me, let's say if there's 10 thoughts in my head at once, I, it will help me distill the one thought that I was trying to get to that was actually the one I wanted to think about there and then and get to it. But I think it's only really hard, George, if you're trying to control it. You know, I don't know where control fits into ADHD as a disease or neurodivergency, but for me, control has been a really big word in my life. Always trying to control situations. I think it probably stems from what I went through with my mum. I always wanted to control life because life pulled the rug from underneath. So, yeah, I think that's part of what's been so exciting about this creative journey. You know, in the creative space, like, you can you start working on one track, drop like eight bars, 12 bars, 16 bars and be like, let's move to the other sample. I want to hear that. Or I want to, I want to eat some food or I want to go out for a walk and then I'll come back. Like very different to how we're trained as medics, where it's like task at hand, get it done, lock in, Mm. even just procedures, bro. Isn't it mad how when we do procedures, you like, as soon as you're scrubbed, you can't go take a piss. You can't have a glass of water. You're so like trapped in that, I used to hate doing procedures, George. The moment when I pull off the gown, I'm like, oh, fine. I'm like, I'm out of this. It's like I'm trapped in a... Being trapped is a big thing for me. Being like, Mm. not feeling... Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I had in clinic a child who was quite clearly very restless and having read a lot and a lot of experience of what to look for and how ADHD presents... I'd imagine there are elements of hyperactivity, restlessness, impulsivity that maybe align with what would be a formal diagnosis. And it was interesting because 
this child's mum was trying to, or just couldn't really understand what was going on. And as often happens, was putting it down to behaviour. You need to like behave yourself. And it was interesting when I was to examine the wound, I could see her brain was just... Yeah. It was so much going on. Yeah. And it was fascinating because it was not like destructive stuff, but just a curiosity about everything going on everything one wanted to see that what's that i want to feel that i want to touch that i want to smell that I want to... and joie de, joie de vivre a, a, an appetite for life she's exploring life society's telling her how to explore it but she's exploring she was out in a field or on her own she'd just be doing her thing yeah and when you look at creatives who have brains that work in perhaps similar ways that impulsivity or hyperactivity or distractibility of thought, we laud as brilliance in a similar way with this child. I can see that restless excitement. And I don't know about you, but that feeling when you see somebody in the creative process, like when you're making a, a song, or when you're producing, or when you're inspired, nuts. Like, as opposed to when you're trying to do it mm. and you're trying and nothing's coming. Mm. When you're inspired and you're in the zone, it's crazy because everything just starts... Scattered thoughts just start making links with each other. Absolutely. And it makes sense. And actually, sometimes you're just playing random notes and chords. Just Let's just see what's going to stick. I just want to hear yeah, yeah. all of these buttons and, and, and make sense of it. And like I say, you, you look at so many famous musicians and artists who that's celebrated in. And it's interesting that it's not celebrated in the same way outside of, of the creative fields. Tell us actually about your creative, because it's new, it's recent. It is recent, yeah. inspired by Georgie G, yeah. Ah, tell us about what you're doing in the creative space. Um, everything started last year at my dad's funeral when I gave a eulogy. I'd given a eulogy at my mum's funeral 19 years before. So I was a very different person, I was a very different man. And my best friend came up to me, Wasim. <laughs> Big up, Waz. And he said to me, I don't know what it is, bro, but you have me every time, like, in tears, but also in the reality of what you're telling. And I think it was the first time someone I really loved had said to me, bro, this storytelling thing, you need to expand on it a bit. So I went back to my therapist and she was like, I've been telling you this for time. Mm -hmm. She was always pushing me to go to, like, dance lessons to reconnect with my creative side. And then it started with some memoirs that turned into some spoken word, that turned into some rap, that turned into lyrics. It was crude at the beginning. It was a lot of, a bit like I go on a rant and a rave, a sermon. It was like, it was very political. It was very Malcolm X-esque, Tupac-esque, trying to drill home a point to someone. And then it's only when I started recording music that I, I had this appetite for, I don't know who said it, you probably know, is it my Angelo who said it? He said, it's not what you say, it's how you make people feel. You've heard that? Yeah. And, and it just made me think. And then I got this home studio equipment, I started recording and I started trying to put together bars and put together hooks and singing. And it's now just been this kind of creative journey of, I've gone from writing some webmars to basically creating like, I would call them R&B, poppy R&B, like tracks, catchy, hooks, playful, comedic. I didn't realise how much I like trying to bring humour into 
music. And I might spend three days watching like Rhythm and Flow on Netflix and then just binge watch Dave Chappelle and be like, rah, actually from a performance perspective, there is no one like Dave Chappelle. Do I love watching Lil Wayne spit verses? Yeah. Do I like watching Jay Huss perform? Yeah. But when Dave Chappelle tells a story, it's mad how you'll be watching him for an hour and a half and then at the end, the last joke he has, you'll be like, oh my God, it wrapped the whole thing up. And it's just so intelligent. So I realized that there was an intelligence to creativity. So I was like, okay, well do your music thing, write your lyrics, get your songs out. You know, now I'm very focused, George, on, I believe, I want to see if I have a tribe out there. And this is the first time in my life where technology, society, my development allows me to actually have the skills and the tools to reach out to, to see if there is that tribe. That's what I'm really interested in. I'm really interested with music about how you can connect with different people and find your tribe. And that's really my dream. That's what I want to do. And I think I'm not married to music as an outlet. Do you know what I mean? I think I have a creative approach to things, whether it's the jewellery that I'll wear one evening or whether it's the spec on the car that I get or whether it's the interior design of an apartment. It's like a creative aesthetic. It's something that I want to express. But right now it's very much in the music and the songwriting. And what I love about hip hop is I think hip hop is the original form of storytelling. I don't know that there is a more powerful musical medium of telling a story than personally. This is, my, this is how I see it in hip hop. I'm an R&B head. I love R&B. Don't get me wrong. But hip hop, that voice, that pain, that vulnerability, no instruments, no vocals, no melodies to distract you. It's just listen to what my man's saying. He's telling you how he feels right now. I think it's a very powerful... Oh, woman. Oh, woman, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very true. Yeah, exactly. I mean, not all women, the woman, do you know what I mean? The goat. Yeah, the goat, exactly. Not enough phrase for her. But the way you put that, it hit me because we've spoken so much while you've been on this journey and I'm always asking you, what is it that you're wanting to say? Because I've always had the impression from the sometimes veiled way that you present your work it's it was like it's it's superficial and it just in my brain I couldn't really get it because I know that there's the deep side of you and I know that a lot of people that are investing time and effort into music in the way that you have are not doing it for a superficial reason because it won't give you that back and so when you've described it here it it allowed me to really understand through the story. I asked you before, is this you finding your voice? And you said exactly that. Yeah. This is allowing you to do that. And, and that storytelling is a big thing for you. It's a big talent of yours. And this is the vessel that allows you to Absolutely. achieve that. The and other thing is, George, you've, and we've talked about this before, bro, where you've been like, I want to hear the real, I want to hear the deeper stuff. I want to hear the rawer stuff. I want to hear the harder stuff. I'm taking the same approach in music that I've taken with my whole life, which is that when I step to people and I start just talking about mum, I just go straight to it. It's too much, bro. People aren't looking to live, a lot of people day to day aren't looking to connect with that rawness and that pain because they're going through their own stuff because they have their own channel, or maybe they're just not switched on for that. So one of my approaches with music is 
what did music do for me? What did hip hop and R&B, what did they do for me? When those bangers came on, I lost myself. I felt like all the worries about everything just goes. And I just felt, so I thought maybe that's the way to do it, to do that. And I've always had this idea. This is, this is a bit of a mad one, but I've always thought to myself, if I can just get someone to love me or love who I am as a doctor, as a artist, as a watch call it, then maybe if they've already loved me, when they find out all the other things about me, my eccentricities, my sexuality, the things I do, they love you already, do you know what I mean? So you're like, you trick them into loving you and, and then they, and so I feel like that's why with the music thing, I, it's not that I don't want to share some of the deeper, darker stories. I just feel like I need to like, like check, check the lap, let people know what I'm about, give it to them in layers. Do you know what I mean? Because I feel like otherwise it can be too, you know me, you love me, but you've known me for a long time, bro. And probably if I turned up as intense as I was now, back when we first met. You were. <laughs> My guy. <laughs> but, but was... What you just said to me is what you said at the start. Am I going to be accepted? Yeah. You, I don't expect that. fucking life, be... bro. I think that's the point, right? All of this, all of these things are circular. They are all interlinked. And when you can put language to it, I find it can be quite reassuring because then if you hit a bad patch, if you say creatively you run dry or you invest in a song that doesn't catch, for example. Yeah. If you know the reason you're doing it, you don't have to panic when something superficial doesn't go the way you want it to because you know that this is serving a, a great absolutely. purpose. Absolutely. I was sitting on the couch yesterday listening to one of my tracks and for a second I didn't realise it was me. And I was like, bruv, what's, what's happening here? You're listening, you're on your couch, listening to a song. This was your dream when you were a kid. Your dream was to record music. So at least for that, at least for that, say so you tick that box. Yeah. We were speaking earlier about <clears throat> loving yourself and stuff. And I, I told you that positive self-talk is something I can't really see being a thing that will work for me for, for whatever reason. But you said demonstrate you, you love yourself, etc. I think this is a way that you're doing that. But I tell you, because I, in a sense, it's like you're giving yourself the things that maybe you didn't get as a kid, the opportunity to tell your story, to look for your tribe, and by your tribe, I'm supposing you're meaning the people that you don't have to worry about rejecting you, and which comes back to you, un unconditional love, right? Yeah. And you feel this is the way to get it and you're giving yourself a chance to have it by in indulging in it. Yeah. It's cool. When you talk about the tribe and going into hip hop, you really gravitate towards your African roots and like African, do you know what I mean? Yeah, what I mean absolutely. You're black, you're, yeah, you're, the, black, the black side of however small it is, however dilute it is wherever it stems from but that energy that i'm drawn to that energy absolutely yeah absolutely and it's mad because also growing up in london it's funny a lot of my black mates or a lot of my like my mixed race mates when i came out where well, they were just a bit like yeah bro but it was pretty obvious wasn't it from when you were like little one <laughs> and i found it so funny how 
I was expecting so many people to be so annoyed by it or pissed off by it. I was expecting a lot more backlash, but it was actually the Egyptian community that I got a lot more backlash from. I just got a lot more opinions, bro. A lot of people had a fucking opinion about how I should be living. So the thing about hip hop, and I also have learned a lot from the culture, George. I've learned a lot from the culture. Like my professor, Junior, sometimes says to me, he's like, you always strategic thinking like trying to, and I was like, yeah, bro, it's called hustling. And it's from watching hustlers hustle. Because <laughs> if you don't have privilege, or you're not gonna rely on privilege, or you're one step away from not having that privilege, it builds in you this hunger to hustle. Mm. And I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot from the music, from the film, from the fashion. It's raised me, the cultures, it's just, it's raised things in me that are, yeah, it's, I don't know, like I'm nearly 40 and it's been there since I was like, listening to Michael when I was five years old, watching Moonwalker and imitating his dance. And let's not forget, Michael was a black guy, one of the, one of the, one of the OGs. So I don't know, I just, I think I'm just coming to a realization and I'll tell you what else happened. And I remember talking to my dad about this right before he died. My dad maybe didn't understand how close I was to black culture and how safe I felt in black British culture. And the NHS is a big part of that because the NHS is a beautiful place where you have that we have a big black and ethnic minority community within mm. our hospitals and work. So you have that connection. And everyone who took care of my dad, apart from one person when he died, all six people were black or African, black British or from the district nurse managing his diabetes to the palliative care nurses, to the Macmillan nurses, to the carer that we got to stay with him up till the night he died. And I remember talking to him about it maybe a week and just saying, this is, I feel safe. This, this, I just feel safe around this, around these people, this tribe. And it was a interesting moment because he also looked around and he was like, Oh, actually, everyone who's taking care of me and my son, who's got his hair cane road, he's got like all the people around me are, who are actually caring for me in my final days are of a certain tribe or at least affiliate with a certain tribe. It's nice. We're going to go on to the final bit of the episode, as we okay. always do, with the three pivotal tracks. The first track has to be Doo-Wop by Lauren Hill. first song I ever learned from front to back, including the skits. It's the one that taught me to rap. It's the one that told me I wanted to sing. And Lauren Hill is just a queen. She's just a queen. She said some slightly outlandish shit in the past, but she's a queen. She's to me one of the ultimate performers. And I think if you listen to the song, it's so multi-layered and multi-textured. And if you even just listen to Lauren Hill singing, it's funny how now when I listen to it, I realize that she's singing on four or five different takes. I always remember listening to music when I was growing up and thinking, ooh, I like the way you did that. And then think to myself, I wonder how many other people who listen to this song have noticed that. So Lauren Hill was like the first time where it was like, it was a real life example for me, for my inattentiveness, whatever you want to call it, to like, to really get locked into how the rule book was different when you were listening to music. You could do that. Mm. And 
doo-wop is a, is a genre of R&B. Is it? Yeah. To read the Wikipedia definition, doo-wop is a genre of R&B music that originated in African-American communities during the 40s. Yeah. Yeah. But also, the first thing that got me hooked on Lauren Hill was Sistrack 2, the film. That yeah. gospel vibe. Steeped in history. It's interesting that you picked that one, huh? Yeah. It's also, Considering what you artist, just said. The artist that I'm drawn to, there's Tupac is a huge inspiration for me. But I've actually started listening less to Tupac since I've started writing music. I've moved away from quite political, angry music to much more like healing, loving music, I think. I love Tupac. Tupac is, in my mind, probably the best example of a political artist, an artist that did more for the culture than people will ever realise. And a real metamorphosis of a man and an artist and the son of a Black Panther. But his mum was a crack addict, but he came through and he just... He was a Gemini. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of rappers are Geminis, huh? Really? A lot of famous rappers. Kanye. Didn't realise that, bro. I googled it. Biggie, I think. There's a lot. Google it. Like, there's a couple... But the next track I picked, bro. Oh, before we finish, The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. Oh. The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill is the only album that I can listen to from front to back with all the skits. I know all the words for when she's... Yeah, I'm going to write something on the board. L O V Love. You can love anybody. You love anybody. You love it. No, the they want it. You just... Miseducation of Lauryn Hill is like Eddie Murphy Raw. It's like part of my, like, my blueprint. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's so, of, nothing even matters. Yeah, such an important album. Love Lauren. I saw her live. Saw her live at the Apollo. Yeah, Sick. she's incredible. And it's after she released the I Gotta Find Peace of Mind or the Christian guitar. MTV okay. Unplugged. And D when did you ever see the clip when they were about to announce her winning the Grammy? No. The album of the year. No. <laughs> I'll bring up the clip is amazing. With Whitney Houston. Whitney, oh my God. Gotcha. (laughs) She's a queen, she's bad. It's bad. Track number two. Feel so good. Feel so good by Mace. Oh. You ready, Mace? Just even for the video, bro. First of all, this. Uh It's It's about about that time time for us to. Yeah. Yeah. What you know about going out head west, red legs, TV, this one I haven't heard in. Forever. Hey, bro. This was when Mace was. Bro, Mace was the guy. And what do you like about this? You seen the video with that big bomber jacket? This reminds me of being 14 in my room, blaring my music, my dad shouting, Temir, turn your music down, putting on my fake silver diamond encrusted chain and my velour tracksuit and my bandana and my cap and going to watch Best Sam DJ at 50 Cent's birthday party in, in Attico. I, I, I can't remember the, these nightclubs that he used to take us to when we were like kids and youths. And it just represents everything about being like, when I play that music, I was like, oof, I'm in that music video. I ain't at King's, I ain't Coptic. I ain't got problems with my sexuality. I'm in this video, I'm dancing, I got the outfit. It, this song like catapulted me to a different world. And the one thing you have to give to Diddy, bro, as a producer, is Diddy made fun music. I know Diddy right now is not things things are a bit hot for my man, <laughs> but Diddy makes 
<laughs> no, but he makes bangers, bro. He makes bangers. He makes I mean, fun music. Can't, you can't deny that. No, you can't, you can't deny that. And he's the one who perfectly fused R&B and hip hop. Notorious B.I.G. I specifically didn't pick B.I.G. or Tupac or any of these artists when you asked me because I wanted to think, I wanted to dig a bit deeper than just, I wanted to think about songs that had, were part of my blueprint. When I hear them, I'm like, ooh, that's, that's, that's my song. It sounds like coming of age yeah. And very much keeping within the hip hop theme. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a... A true blood. I'm not even sure if I'm a true blood, but I'm definitely a real sort of... Everyone thinks about these genres as all hip hop, whereas for me, this song is completely different to Feel So Good, which is completely different to Do What. Someone else who might be listening would say, these are all the same genre, these are all, what about a classical track? What about a, a rock track? What about a, another sort of whole genre? I'm gluttonous, bro. I'm gluttonous in the genre, do you know what I mean? I'm. I'm it's like you're saying to me, you can have a carbonara, a cacio pepe, and like an aglio chili pasta. I'm like, yeah, bro, they're all different pastas to me. They're completely different dishes. But they're all like white sauce pasta dishes. No, it's, yeah. What's your third track? It's called Love You Too by Moco. This girl too rude, I think she thinks I'm a country I'm so, I was surprised that you put this one in Because it's a very recent track It is But listen to his Listen to his I think one of the things that I've always struggled with Dating House, drill house, like a lot of the same I think what I really liked about this Mocha track Is he has a very nice tone to his voice And it's very intoxicating this to him Like I I was like, okay, so tell me what's going on with this girl, bro. She's stressing you out. I like that. Do you know what I mean? It was like being on the phone with him. It was like, it was something between maybe a track and a podcast. Do you know what I mean? It was like storytelling. It was just the right frequency for me to feel like it's not too much and it's not too little. So yeah, this track really got me into one of the things I'm working on next with the producer is lo-fi beats and the kind of, the talking. That's where it lends itself well to. It's quite conversational and conscious rap. Not too heavy on the structure it's more like i'm trying to tell you something i love that uk i don't think they call it jazz rap yeah and the other sub specialties are sharing a lot of maturity i like it these are young guys seeing the world we didn't grow up in and i'm learning a lot about it from them and like you said before the willingness to be vulnerable i guess and the, remo and the removal of toxic masculinity and I think that's what's kept men of colour down for a very long time. Uh, I, think, I think toxic masculinity is something that exists in all men, but it's something that has been celebrated and valued a lot more in certain... I can Let me speak very heavily about Egyptian and like Middle Eastern culture. We have a real... We really like that toxic, masculine... Like... We celebrate that. And I found that very hard growing up because I'm not like that. Mm. I wanted to be vulnerable. I wanted to talk to you about how I felt. I was very emotional in all these things. And they used to call me Farfi, which is like this word that we use in Arabic for like pussy, basically. Oh, wow. So, yeah. One of my friend's mum's called Farfi as well. I don't really understand how that works. But anyway, that's how it is anyway. That's how they, that's one of the words. So one of the things I love about, like you were talking about this Moko boy is that it's very like, 
He's it's really telling you the story. Like he's really giving you, he's giving you his heart. Mm. There is, of course, toxic masculinity and a lot in hip hop, but I think there are a lot of layers in a lot of the hip hop that people think is just toxic. There's a lot of nuanced vulnerability within it. Yeah. People expressing themselves. Talking about Tupac, few people have yeah, yeah. been as brave yeah. to be vulnerable as him. Yep. And talk about stuff that was taboo. Yeah. That was left Absolutely. field. Absolutely. And also, everyone's level of vulnerability, George, is relevant to their reality. I have the privilege of being vulnerable in a way that many people in different parts of the world will not have. So I completely, I'm completely appreciate. I'm speaking from a place of privilege, and by no means judging or, or putting a standard on other people's music or their expression. I think what I was trying to say is that we have a culture, and I include black culture in this, rightly or maybe wrongly. It's just my opinion, but certainly the synergy that I see between like my Arab friends and my black friends was even if you just look at the homophobia that we have, I think that stems quite closely to these ideas of what a man is, how a man behaves, what defines a man. And I would say that a lot of those things, despite maybe being trapped in culture and religion and beliefs and everything, and unfortunately I think they are quite toxic. And I think often when unchecked, lead to quite severe and serious pain and trauma and all the things that you suffer with after that, if those things aren't dealt with. 100%. I don't think that you can really argue with that. Yeah. It's refreshing to see that there are some boundary-pushing artists out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Opening themselves up. And like we were saying before, it's a weird place that the world is in where you rely on people who are going through it to make things that are not harming people be acceptable. Yeah. My guy. Once you start releasing your own stuff, when that time comes, there's no pressure, but I'm looking forward to it. As we say in Arabic, inshallah. Inshallah. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been for, a pleasure for me. Thanks for having me. Thanks man. for coming on, being candid and opening up parts of you I can only imagine were difficult and revisiting memories that have been traumatic that you may not have otherwise so we appreciate that and I hope it's a safe space isn't it it is a safe space and you've given me an opportunity to think more about how different people's experiences present and how you can be very wrong about an impression that you have of somebody yeah. And we say, don't judge book by cover and know what somebody's going through. It's nice to have these reminders, even from your closest friends. Yeah. You know, so if, if you don't see it with your closest friends, then what chance do you have in seeing it in other people? So thank you. And I will have to say, bro, I need to have the closing word here. And I thought about this. I thought about how I wanted... One of the things that I've never thanked you for, and I've never thanked you and the boys know who they are, that I have to reel them off. Might have to forget Harmony slightly. <laughs> But I don't think I ever thanked you guys for what you did for me after mum died. Because you lot scooped me up and took care of me and healed me. And that's why I'm standing here today. And I certainly wouldn't have made any medical degrees or any music or anything if it wasn't for that. So I'm also extremely privileged to have that in my life. So that's why it's a pleasure to come on your podcast, bro. Tamar, thank you. Peace. You can find all of the episodes of Why Different on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe so you can be informed whenever a new episode comes out. 
find out more about our guests and what we're getting up to. Social at underscore wide different. And you can find Tamaresque Instagram at Dr. T with their realness. That information will be in the show notes together with all of the information about today's episode. Thanks very much for listening. Take care.